I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show welcome to mcdonald's what can i get you today hi she'll have the quarter pounder with cheese extra mustard no pickles and i'll have a 10 piece chicken mcnuggets and And two two sides of ranch please the we've done this before meal get it at mcdonald's when you get two of your faves for just six bucks limited time only prices and participation may vary single item at regular price did you get, did Aaron send over the sort of shape of the show? Yep. There's, okay. a, there's a dance portion at the beginning where I yes. do, I dance. Mostly you guys, dancing. Oh, yeah. Okay. I just want to make <laughs> So many, so many, so many damn books. My name is Christopher. I'm Drew. And this is So Many Damn Books. We have George Saunders joining us, zooming on in to the damn library. George, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. It's great to be here. George Saunders is the author of 11 books, including Lincoln and the Bardo, which won the 2017 Man Booker Prize for Best Work of Fiction in English, and was a finalist for the Golden Man Booker, in which one Booker winner was selected to represent each decade from the 50 years since the prize's inception. Story Collection 10th of December was a finalist for the National Book Award, won the inaugural Folio Prize in 2013, and the Story Prize. Sanders has received MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships and the Penn Prize for Excellence in the Short Story. In 2013, he was named one of the 100 Most Influential People by Times Magazine. He has taught in the Creative Writing Program at Syracuse University since 1997 and is a graduate of the program. And we can't believe we have you on the show. We're so excited. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny to be named the world's most on the list of influential people. And you see how it turned out now. You know, I think somebody <laughs> should sue me for that. <laughs> well, I feel like uh, if if any of the that stuff gets audited, you know, we'll 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 look at that down the line. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so every time that we um we have an author on the show, we always make a drink inspired by the book, and usually we get to share that with the author and um, get to break the ice by having alcohol break down that ice. <laughs> in in quarantine, that's become much more difficult. But I did make a drink inspired by your new book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. Since it's Russian, it of course had the star Russian vodka, which gets mentioned in so many of the stories that uh, comprise the book. There's quarts of vodka, (laughs) um, literal quarts, and... um, (laughs) I, I think just freezing cold vodka, one of my absolute favorite things in New York City is the Russian vodka room, and they just take infused vodkas, shake them cold, and serve them to you. And so I was kind of thinking about that when I was thinking about um, what to make for this. So it's just 
Russian vodka with cherry peppercorn syrup, which is really easy to make at home. Um, and we'll have the recipe on so many And uh, yeah, so it's just a teaspoon of cherry peppercorn syrup and two ounces of Russian vodka shaken very, very cold. It makes this beautiful um, dark, it's a, I used dark cherries to Ooh. make it. And um, it's, it's sort of a bracing shot. I'm calling it the Russian master shot. And so I'm going to drink to you both of your health. sounds great. Nostrovia. Nostrovia. And to you, Nostrovia. You know, I was in Russia many, many years ago. The first time I was there was in the 80s. And um, I was a young guy in the oil business. And I went over to the Metropole Hotel in Moscow. And I'm sitting at one of those communal tables with these two young guys. And um, they're drinking, like, a lot of vodka. So I, <laughs> you know... I jumped in with him and um, suddenly they're both looking over my shoulders and their eyes got really big and they literally started almost shaking with like delight, you know? So I turn around and there's this old guy, probably, you know, 70 years old, very handsome older guy. And he says something which I take to mean, may I join you? And the, the, the two guys nearly fall out of their chairs. So he sits down, he just jumps right in and we're just drinking and drinking and drinking. And I keep waiting for the reveal, you know? And finally, <laughs> one of the guys uh, leans over and he says, uh, this man is like Russian Jimmy Stewart. He, oh. Some kind of famous actor, you know, who they knew from their childhood. So th it just, I mean, I don't know if it was always like this, but they just drank and drank and drank for at least another <laughs> hour. And I finally had to just bail, you know? But they were so impressed with it. It was literally like Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks sat down with you and, you know, uh, that would vodka. Be, oh man, that'd be amazing. I would, <laughs> I would very happily drink uh, a bottle of vodka with Tom Hanks. I feel like that'd be a, a night well spent. I think so. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, Christopher, but the last year has been kind of a difficult one. I felt like there have been things interfering with happiness. My goals have kind of gone out the window. Uh, and therapy, honestly, has been one of the best things that I ever have done for myself over the course of the last year. I feel like there's a barrier to entry to therapy that's e even larger right now because it's just like, I don't want to go to therapy. I don't want to go to any office at all. <laughs> so BetterHelp is here to sort of as a solution to this. And you don't have to go anywhere. You can do it all virtually. It's all online. And it's not a crisis line. It's not like a self-help thing. It's professional counseling and it's done securely online. It's great too. There's a huge range of expertise available, which is particularly great for folks who maybe don't have a ton of locally available options, even during non-pandemic times. You'll be matched with a licensed professional therapist who will be able to work with you directly. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. Um, and so also, if you don't like the person or if it's not a good fit, it's easy to change counselors if you need to. And it's also available worldwide. There's uh, some financial aid available too. It's also much more affordable than traditional therapy and counseling. Um, it's... It's really terrific. You can go to the BetterHelp website and read testimonials, um, or you can just check out betterhelp.com slash SMDB. That's betterhelp.com slash SMDB. And you can join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. 
And if you do go to the um, betterhelp.com slash SMDB, you do get 10% off your first month. So that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Before we dive into your work, George and the Russians, uh, we've got to talk about, it's a new year today. The day that we're recording this is the first new book Tuesday of the year. Has anybody gotten any books recently? Christopher, why don't we start with you? Oh yeah, I'll start. Yeah, I'm so excited about this book. It arrived in the mail. Um, it's out at the end of February, actually. So it's not quite out yet, but it's so exciting and I can't wait to dive into it, um, especially with the cold weather. It's called The Blizzard Party uh, by Jack Livings. And it's uh, about the 1978 blizzard that hit New York. And it's through the eyes of a six-year-old. And I'm always really interested in child narrators. And um, it's, it's them, I think it's as an adult looking back through their six-year-old eyes. And um, I, I'm really excited to, to see what the book is like. And then I also got sent, I'm really excited about this one too. We actually had Melissa Phoebos on the show before, but she's got a new book coming out in March called Girlhood, which is about her childhood. And um, I just remember that she had a sea captain father from her first book. And so I'm very curious to hear about what her actual childhood was like. <laughs> um, so that's, that's, those are the books that got sent to me. What about, what about you, Drew or George? George, why don't you go? Well, sure. I, um, we do a thing at our house where we, we have a kind of a post-Christmas uh, purchase of whatever we didn't get that we wanted. Uh, so we've got this... Um, <laughs> this book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain uh, by Lisa, Lisa Feldman Barrett. And it's kind of a short, uh, you know, maybe 150 page summary of uh, what we've recently learned about the brain by this neuroscientist. And then we also ordered sort of in a package, this one called How Emotions Are Made by the same author. And it looks like it's an expansion of the first. So I'm, I'm really lately into this whole idea of... Um, uh, I read Michael Pollan's uh, How to Change Your Mind last year. And it seemed to me that a lot of my interests dovetailed like, okay, so brain function, uh, meditation, and the creative process, and really curious about how the, um, you know, what are the brain states like in each one of those activities? I think they're similar. There's some, it feels to me experientially that there's some relation. So um, lately what's happening for me is the, what I would consider my spiritual life and a scientific life are kind of crossing a little bit, you know, to say, well, <clears throat> whatever uh, one could do to make yourself happier and more positive and more loving, it must have a neurological basis. Mm -hmm. And so maybe these uh, answers are, are simpler and maybe, you know, obviously those disciplines must be the same ultimately, you know, so that's kind of my, my uh, late life crisis or late life mission is to figure all this shit out. So, uh, you know, when death comes, it'll be very peaceful and easy and it'll all make sense. <laughs> so it's not a crisis. It's, it's pre-crisis. It's, it's staving off the crisis. It's pre-crisis. It's crisis prep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's light, it's, it's light reading. <laughs> it's so wild that you mentioned the Michael Pollan book, because that's actually one of the two books that I just picked up. I did a similar thing of, of, there were two books that 
I were on my, like there were a ton of books on my list, but there were two that I wanted to read. Um, a friend of mine who, she used to be the literary manager at Signature Theater Company in New York. Uh, and she and I have sort of been, for lack of a better term, depression buddies. We are really good about, uh, we try to inspire each other to just be open and honest about it, both with the, ourselves and with our partners and online and just sort of modeling um, honesty about mental health. And she was raving about this book to me. And it's just, it's been on my mind to pick it up and I haven't done it, I haven't done it. And then I was at the Golden Notebook in Woodstock and a copy was just sitting face out on the shelf. And I was like, I was feeling, and so many people are these days, kind of bummed out. And I was like, ah, yep, today's the day, we're doing it. And so I picked that up. I'm very excited to read it, particularly now uh, hearing your recommendation as well, George. And then the other book on the complete inverse, totally for fun, is Sam J. Miller's new novel, The Blade Between, uh, which is set in Hudson, sort of just diagonally across the river from me. It's about a um, sort of early middle-aged gay man who left Hudson when he was a teenager after having a terrible time there and he hates it. He comes back to take care of his ailing father and sort of gets wrapped up in a weird, it, it might be horror, it might just be kind of a thriller. There's definitely some supernatural stuff going on and gentrification. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, ex I'm excited. It, Sam, it turns out, is a, a Hudson native uh, and I'm always excited to read books that are deeply steeped in these locations that are very new to me. I feel like it's a cool way to find my way around a little bit. Gentrification, the true horror. Yeah. And, and if you get to the Golden Notebook, tell them I said hi. That's such a great store. I, I, I will. It's so, <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah. <laughs> we both been George Saunders readers for a long time. Um, I was thinking about the first book of yours that I read, which was in college. It was actually a signed reading uh, for a power and representation class my freshman year of college. Um, it was the brief and frightening reign of Phil. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've been reading you for so long. It's so exciting to have you here. <laughs> for this book, which is a swim in a pond in the rain in which four Russians give a master class on writing, reading, and life. It's, it's a completely singular reading experience. I've never read a book like this before. Um, how do you feel like it fits in the George Saunders library, you know, up against with all of your other books? How do you feel like it feels in your, in your career? Uh, I, I love hearing you say that it's, you know, it's, earlier you said strange or weird. I, I love the idea that something would surprise someone who knew my other work. I, that's kind of the, the goal. Uh, I really, I, I've gotten into this thing where um, ever since my first book, I just feel like whenever my mind starts to say, oh, you're this kind of writer, or you should do this. I just say, get the behind me. I don't, I don't want to I don't want to make a cookie cutter and then walk into it. Like I'd rather just honor my natural curiosity and energy. And there's some, there's some like mysterious thing that you feel. Uh, it might be like when a dog smells something it wants to follow, you know? Uh, I don't really know why I want to write a certain book, but I, it just pushes to the foreground and I've kind of learned to trust that. So my, the one thing I hope 
um, unifies all the books is when I was a, a in in Colorado in college in the seventies, there was a, a certain way you said this word. It was they would they always go like, uh, "Dude, that's intense." <laughs> so for me, that's the goal to be intense. You know, <laughs> like like I don't care. You know, if it's weird, I don't care if it's um, even if people don't like it, I don't mind as long as they go, "What the fuck is that?" That 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 kind of feeling of something that um, you know, I talk a lot in this book about having respect for the reader, and to me the. The, the leading indicator that you've had respect is that you didn't phone it in, you know, mm -hmm. whatever it turned out to be, you, you try to make it the most intense version of itself. And then you kind of stand, stand back and go, wow, what, what was that? So um, it thrills me when someone says, I, this book is, I don't know, it's weird. It's, I, it's unexpected. That's kind of the, the desired effect, I guess. Well, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it definitely did. Well, that's intense, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> there's something so surprising about this and yet also kind of comforting. And I, I guess my question, you, you, you do go into this in the book, but what, what was it about now, I guess that, that, or what was the thing sort of that came to mind, the scent that you caught that you wanted to follow of taking these stories that you've been teaching for so long and sort of making it, making these lessons more broadly available. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was something about getting, I don't think I'm at the end of my teaching career, but I just got a, a big teaching reduction. So I'm teaching only one semester a year and may never teach this course again, actually. It, I mean, it oh, kind of wow. depends, but probably not. Uh, so it was something about that and going, you know, that, that really was, you know, when you get like, I'm 62, I just turned 62. So one of the things that happens is uh, a kind of real pragmatic little guy uh, appears in your head and he looks back at his life and he's very honest about what worked and what didn't, you know, like that was a waste of time. That was a beautiful thing to do. You were totally wrong for that decade, you know, whatever. Um, and one of the things that I, I, I flashed on was just how lovely this teaching life has been. And I, and I think I'd kind of taken it for granted or, you know, when you're a writer, you sometimes you supposedly you teach so that you can have the time to write. Uh, and that's true. But when I, it was one day after class and I just thought, wow, I've had so many transcendent moments with people 20, 30 years younger than me, um, where the distinction between teacher and class disappeared, the age difference disappeared, everything disappeared, except this common purpose in trying to figure out these stories by guys who've been dead for 150 years. So I, I just thought, yeah, you know, that, that was a thing. And if I, uh, at that time, I thought was if I document it, then it will be up continue to be a thing. And maybe what I didn't realize is, of course, when you try to quote unquote document something uh, by the earlier enforced intensity principle, you have to go deeper. You know, it can't, you can't just type up the notes. You have to like open the, the box, you know, and really go in. So uh, the real upshot was that I just fell in love with the story again, actually the short story form, uh, just by spending two years with seven stories. That's wonderful. I remember in your breakdown of the singers, you talk about how when they when he lists what makes up a face or what makes up a person that you can't make a person out of that. <laughs> and I just felt so 
I guess it's not exactly brave to admit that or something, but I just was realizing like, I've always felt that I've never been able to, what's an aquiline nose? Like, I don't know what that means. And I don't know like how to put that onto a face. Um, <laughs> so seeing right. someone write that yeah. down and be like, oh, sometimes when you see that in a short story, it doesn't say anything to you and that's okay. Like that's, that's just, uh, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was the thing I discovered in this book that I think was the kind of bedrock principle, which is that any time, okay, in, in the artistic realm, <clears throat> when we criticize something, it's a kind of a, a step process. First thing you do is you, you read it with an open mind, and then you have a, a reaction. You just have a reaction. And all this assumes that you're a pretty well-trained reader and you've, you know, it's not your first book, but so you, you have a reaction. All right, then do you um, allow the reaction? Do you validate it, you know? Now, when you're young, at least when I was young, because I was kind of a working class person who hadn't read that much, I'd have a reaction, but then suppress it because it didn't seem smart enough or it didn't seem mm. literary enough. You know, that's a big mistake because then you've lost touch with the thing. You know, now you're faking it. You're all right. So then you, you validate the reaction uh, and then you can you notice it? Can you really say, yeah, on page three, he really lost me, you know, or or she really reeled me in. And the last step is you articulate that. That's it. You know, mm -hmm. that's really what it is. But that whole process could be seen as a way. I mean, it's, it's basically a life skill. You know, you go to a party, you have a creepy feeling. You don't turn away from it. You, you validate it. Then you articulate it, you know. So, yeah. so I think that with, when we study stories, <clears throat> you're basically training yourself to trust your own mind for one thing and then trust your ability to articulate that which occurs in your mind. And that's a very powerful thing. It also puts you in an, um, a lovely relationship with another mind that is the author, you know, if I say, uh, I, I set up an expectation and your heart rises at it and I know your heart rose at it and you know that I knew that suddenly, <laughs> you know, we're in this really high level communication that I would say it's only possible through that kind of prose, you know? So it's, it's, it turned out to be a really deep thing. Um, that was very rewarding, not only in a literary way, you know, to, I'm yeah. very grateful for that, that exact lesson, honestly, because um, I, as I was reading this, I was also reading for the first time David Copperfield, which is one of the few Dickens novels I had never read before. I am a, a big Dickens fan. And I found myself about 250, 300 pages in sort of starting to feel it dragging for me. And I was definitely having a response of like, well, it was Dickens's favorite book of his. Everybody seems to love like, is there something, and there was just this moment of like, oh, right, this is how I'm feeling. It's how I'm feeling right now. It, I think I only had that very generous reaction instead of either forcing my way through it or sort of harboring this guilt about not enjoying David Copperfield <laughs> because I had just read that note. And I'm curious about how being a teacher has changed you or informed you as a writer. Well, I mean, one thing is just what you mentioned earlier, when you're teaching, um, you, you're not, your first impulse, your first insecure impulse uh, is to show off or to prove that you're the one with the information. You, you know, you guys shut up and listen. That doesn't work, you know, especially with students like we have at Syracuse. So what you learn is uh, you have to be in dialogue with the class and you have to, your, your intention has to be to provide whatever transformation they need. And, and there's 25 different cases of transformation that's needed in a group of writers. So you're not really, you know, you really are trying to disappear a little bit mm. uh, or you're trying to say things, you know, something you say or something you direct them to look at in the story 
goes out, it lands in 25 mines. And if it's flavored the right way, it creates a little revolution in some of those mines. That, that would be the goal. So that's a, that's a, um, it's a really nice exercise because it diminishes you. You can't be the, the story. Your relation to them has, has to be the story. So that, I think, got into my writing because it has to do with audience awareness. You know, If I'm standing in front of a class and I'm talking really smart in a way that's not getting through to them, kind of like Dickens was talking to you, um, <laughs> you feel it. And, and, and you don't like it, but also it makes you sad because these are people who came to study with you and they're hungry and they're talented. So I think it made me more, um, when I was young, I think I had the idea that the artist you know, stood up on a mountain and said really smart things and just everybody down below had to just shut up and listen and be impressed and send the awards up by Mueller or whatever. Um, but then as you get older, you're like, what a, it's an opportunity for your mind to meld with another mind. But for that to happen, your mind has to kind of shut up a little bit, you know? So uh, that's the, the quality that I found getting into the book too, was I don't really want to tell you what to think. I want to say something that makes us both kind of put our foreheads together and go, huh, maybe, you know, like that. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a nice thing. And, and for me, you know, it's, it's um, again, it's, it's sort of been training in life because once you realize that about your students, you have a chance to interact with people so much younger than you from so many different backgrounds. And the first move is always assumption of good intent. You know, these are smart kids. They're here for the right reasons. No matter how they present, they are good. And I'm going to talk to the part of them that's good. I, I had a, a colleague one time telling me, I had a, a freshman class that was really kind of angry, you know, and obstinate. And they were just sitting back and, and <laughs> snarling at me. And this older colleague said, um, what you have to do is imagine them as the 40 year olds they will someday become, you know, <laughs> they've got mortgages, they've got hemorrhoids, you know, they're, they're a little bit unhappy. Their, their ship has sailed, you know, talk to that person. Cause that's the person who's going to need literature, you know, and you're, it's a way of imagining them generously, you know, okay. Now they're 19 and sullen and they're beautiful and they're arrogant, but someday they're going to be brought, you know, brought low by the world as we all, <laughs> and that was really helpful because then, because then if they didn't like me, that's okay. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to you, you know, 30 years or 20 years from now. Um, so it's all, it, teaching has been a wonderful chance to um, just to be in relation with other people that, I mean, that, that might be the, the best opportunity of all. That's so beautiful. I was curious if this would work, if this book would work, if you were doing it with your own stories, you know, was, was there ever something that you wanted to bring in your own work or were you like, okay, it's way too much to call myself a master. So I'm going to take these like decided masters. Can you talk about that sort of decision? Yeah. I, well, I, um, it, it's funny cause that same dilemma comes up in class, you know, where, you, where I'm thinking, well, I, I have a pretty good example from the story I worked on but that's a little weird, you know, <laughs> you know, like, uh, Hey kids, when I was writing, you know, but, but sometimes it's good. I mean, and I always sort of say it like, it's like, this is, uh, this is weird. I'm going to do this only because it's, it's pertinent. Um, and I'll say, you know, I'm not making any claims that this is a good story. I'm just saying it, it, it did get published. So let's use it as an example because I happen <laughs> to have insider knowledge about it. Um, but I, you know, I think one of the subtext subtext of this book is that there isn't a, there is not a method, you know? So if somebody says, I've got seven tips for writing, it, it, you always have to say, according to me, you know, it's, it's not. And, and I think the first couple of years of teaching, I thought, Hey, I just had a book out. I must know everything. So just listen to what I say. 
it just doesn't work. You know, people, people writing is such a mysterious, weird thing. So what you really have to do is come to the class a little bit like a supplicant, like, what can I do to help you? Uh, you know, you have your own method, your own process. And what ends up happening is you say, okay, I'm going to tell you how I do it. And I'm going to be very persuasive uh, and very passionate about it. But please remember that it doesn't necessarily apply to you. But if it applies to you 3%, that's great, you know. Um, like I do a lot of, I'm kind of a fanatic for rewriting. I'm really obsessive about it. Not everybody has to be 90% obsessive like I am, but some of my students could use another 10% of, uh, obsessiveness in rewriting. So sure. it's, it's gotta be really, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's most, it, I have to keep telling myself, it's not about how smart you sound. It's about if they make any progress, you know, and the really interesting thing is it might not be for 10 years. You might say something in class today and they kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll get letters saying, you know, I looked at a note you made in my story 10 years ago. I finally get it, you know? Mm. So it's, it's pretty fun. <laughs> pretty fun. Is there anything you realized about um, past stories of yours through writing this that you're like, oh, you know what? That's why that doesn't work or that's why that works so well. I was doing a Turgenev that whole time. Um, I, I <laughs> yeah, doing Turgenev 6A. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I noticed that these stories work in a different way than mine do. And I, and you know, with, with a lot of these stories, especially the Chekhov, he'll kind of say something very forcefully. He'll make a case for something. You think that's the point of the story. And then he'll run around to the other side of the table and totally contradict it. And all equally convincingly. And just let those two ideas kind of hang there. And I think the, the state you're in at that moment is what the story is about. I don't know that my stories do that. Mine tend to be, uh, maybe, maybe they do. But I, I, I think what I, mainly what happened is I just thought, oh my God, you know, you're 62 and you're only getting to the beginning of this form actually, you know, thank God you got mm -hmm. into it at all. Thank God you had a publishing career, but I, I honestly, I'm hungry for another hundred years of life because there's so, you know, there's so much you can do with this form and uh, it, but it's, you know, like anything worth doing, it's really slow. It takes a long time to, to do anything good. Um, but yeah, mostly it was just, just being impressed with, uh, it's like if your mom pulled, picked the car up of, of somebody, you'd be like, I never knew my mom, you know, and you see the stories like, I never knew how great short stories were. <laughs> unless, you know, unless, of course, your mom did that all the time or something. <laughs> my mom's always lifting cars. It's actually sort of embarrassing. <laughs> mom, mom. Stop lifting cars. Your mom is intense. <laughs> I love uh, Stephen King's book on writing, um, and I felt like there's some similarities between them. Were, were you are you, are you aware of uh, Stephen King? No. Uh, were you read? Have you read on writing? Did that help anyone? I, I have not. I've heard it really highly recommended. I don't read a lot of writing books because they make me nervous somehow. I don't know. I don't know why they do, but um, I know that's a great book. And he's a he's an amazing writer, you know. So he and also Anne Lamott, Bird by Bird, is another book that I think is really really good but i my, my thing was i i kind of um yeah i from teaching i'm really uh well maybe from teaching just maybe from general insecurity i don't really f it's funny i don't feel like i actually know that much about writing because every time you go to do a story it's got its own new rules and it's got a, a whatever you know sort of uh, truisms you're bringing with you are really dangerous because the the story is a 
totally fresh new creature and it does not like to be dictated to, you know, it's got its own DNA. And so if there's any mastery, it's just, it's almost like being a, you know, a plumber who shows up to a job and every time the pipes are made of different material and, you know, there's different gravity and you have different tools and you're different degrees of drunk, you know, it's like you, you can't bring <laughs> the skills that worked last time. So, so if I think about trying, trying to write a how to book, I don't, I, it would probably be what you mentioned earlier, Christopher, which would be to take six or seven stories of mine and be really honest about how they came to be and maybe even provide old drafts because that's pretty telling, you know, because um, mm -hmm. I, th I think it's important to remember that there's just a serious element to it that nobody can reduce. And mm -hmm. even the best books about writing, uh, they should all have a, a footnote that says, unless it's not, you know what I mean? Unless this is all true, <laughs> unless it isn't. Um, so, so a certain amount of humility, anything that's worth doing, you, you, you sort of have to um, be there fresh every time or, or you, you know, you're not honoring the, the activity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I confess in, in picking this book up, I was nervous. I wrote and finished a short story for the first time that I've ever felt good about like writing a short story. And I was like, oh shit, I figured out how to do that. Thank you. But it, I had this moment of like, oh my God, and now I'm going to read this book by a master of the form. Holy shit. And I, I loved the fact that you were so, it almost felt like this is a writing book, but it's also a book for people who might never write a word. And that there's, there's something sure. about the balance of it where I, were you, I guess, I guess my question is, were you thinking about that at all in terms of you know, the, the true legion of adoring George Saunders fans who might pick this up, who are not necessarily ever going to write, who, if this, I feel like if this book was pitched in any different way, they might be like, oh, that's a writing book. It's not for me, but it's so open mm -hmm. and inviting while also still being like, and if you have a pen in your hand, here's a, you know, a fun exercise. <laughs> That, that's so nice to hear. And, you know, I should say that, I mean, this is one of the first times I've talked to anybody about the book. I've, you know, I've had a couple other interviews, but um, it's always exciting to hear what the book did or didn't do, because I actually don't know, you know, it could be, <laughs> who, who knows. Um, my, my thought is that, you know, when I was writing it, I thought, um, you know, and also from writing all these years, and I love it so much, and I worked, I've worked really hard at it, and uh, it's, it's absolutely emblematic of anything you're going you're gonna to do in your life. Absolutely. It has to do... All right. So to write a good story, as, as you found out, you have to have a plan, maybe a little plan, but mostly you're relying on intuition. And in the book, I say it's intuition, which is just like, do I like this or not? You know, like in the optometrist's office, is this better or this better? Right. And then mm -hmm. uh, the additional aid is you got iteration, which is you can do that for two months or a year or 20 years. You can keep going back to it uh, as whatever person you are on that day. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're happy. Maybe you're cheerful. Maybe you're whatever. Um, maybe you really love your work that day. Maybe you really hate it. You go back to it again and again, micro tuning it. And pretty soon the result is better than you, you know, better than any one of those use. Uh, so that's really something. And I think it's so much like everything else, you know, it, it, and the, the lessons that you learn in any intensely done activity uh, is that intuition and iteration come into play and also honest reaction to what you've done. That's, you know, so it was interesting to see the book kind of grow into um, 
I guess something a little more general, but I've felt it happen every day in my life since I've been a writer. You know, you, you, you learn something on the page or you learn a little mental stance and you go out in the world and you use it. You know, you, you make a projection about somebody that you see at the gas station, you know, and then you go, wait a minute, get me rewrite. You know, I don't know that. <laughs> Just because he's got a, a, a stupid bumper sticker on his car that I don't agree with. I don't really know. It may not be his car, you know? So, so that's a, a, a nice way to keep the world fresh, you know? I like that a lot. Keep the world fresh. I like that um, idea. Keep the world fresh. Now's as good a time as any to tell our listeners that a swim in a pond in the rain is a is broken into these seven stories, and they're broken down differently. Each one isn't necessarily broken down in the same way. And I love the 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 first way that we did it. You know, the first way that you brought us through a story just page at a time explaining how you reacted or or what the author was doing i just absolutely loved um that way as like the coming through the tunnel into the world of this book that you were going to be leading us in some ways i felt like i was watching a special effects laden movie and then mm. I was being shown like, okay, so did you like those special effects? Like, let's explain. Like we use green screen here. Everybody here was on like wires. And like, I was really feeling like that's, that was, I was watching the making of, of these stories afterwards. And I thought that that was such an interesting way to put together uh, this book, but it does change then the reading experience. It, it makes it nuts and bolts. And I'm curious, about your own reading experience these days, can you get lost or do you get lo locked into nuts and bolts really quickly? Um, what, how do you read and how can you, how do you make sure that you're keeping the world fresh? Yeah, no, actually for me, they, it only helps. I, I it only helps my writing and it only helps my reading. I, and they're sort of like, um, there's a, oh, I don't know. There's a pleasure in kind of going, oh, I see what he's doing. And then, although, you know, I don't, I think on the first read, I'm never articulating anything, you know, and, and um, so no, it's, it's, I know what you're saying. I don't think it, it hurts you unless it does, you know, but, but <laughs> I think for, for the most part, we can always go a little more technical than we think we can. And the assumption is that, you know, having taken a story apart, that knowledge somehow gets into your body and then it just improves your intuitions in the future. Um, so for me, no, somehow, um, the first time I read a story, I read it just the way I did 30 years ago, just for fun, just to see who dies, you know, or, or whatever. Um, and then it takes, actually, I'm not that good at it, actually. So it takes me a while to, to work through it. And, uh, you know, I, I was teaching this Chekhov story called Lady with Pet Dog for 20 years. And uh, I did an event on it the other day, and I sat down for two days and worked on it. And I found out all kinds of stuff that I'd never seen before, you know, so I don't really, to me, it's not really an issue, but I would say, you know, and I say this to my students, if it is an issue for you, totally respect that, you know, uh, there, there are all kinds of writers who maybe would be bummed out by being so technical. And if that's the case, just, I, I bless you, you know, accept that that's your thing and just move away from it. There's no, you know, no, no need to do it, you, you, but buy the book first, you know, or, or even buy four <laughs> copies first and then reject it. <laughs> then you can really be yeah. sure. <laughs> I'd love to drill down into the to the story that you sort of highlighted, um, Master and Man. Can you talk to us why you wanted to talk about that particular story with us? 
Well, I mean, all of these stories, uh, they, they kind of, the class would usually be 30 or 40 stories. And so when I went to put the book together, I just kind of had an honest day of saying, what were the say 12 stories that taught the best over the years that always got mm -hmm. a lively reaction from the class? Master and Man was number one. Every year that the class will go, it, it's about the same way it is in the book that Master and Man comes about maybe, you know, three quarters of the way, or maybe a little earlier in the semester. And it's maybe when we're starting to feel like we got it, you know, okay, Russians, yeah, yeah. And that story is such an ass kicker that people come in just, you know, overflowing with things to say, and also overflowing with the best thing of all, which is a, that kind of feeling of defeated admiration, like shit, how, who is this Tolstoy guy? How did he get so good? So, so that's really nice because then you can say, all right, let's, let's unpack this thing and let's try to see if we can, in our humble way, knowing, knowing we're going to fail, let's see if we can figure out why we, you know, we're so compelled by it. And by the way, you can do the same thing with a really crappy story. If you, if you can find a really, you know, kind of lukewarm story by a great writer, that will often be a great discussion. People come in hating it and then you can <laughs> tear it apart. But Master and Man, I, the thing I say in the book is that it's, it's speaking of special effects movies, it's really, uh, it's charms are cinematic. You know, you, you, suddenly you're on this, uh, this trip, this fatal trip in the snow. And you really do read along to find out who lives and who dies. And mm -hmm. my experience of the story, every time I read it is, um, I don't, I, I can't believe we're going to die. You know, every time I'm pushing back on that, like, no, 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 it's got to come out differently this time. Uh, I feel the, 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 the menace. I feel the cold. Uh, and that in itself is a huge accomplishment, you know, to take some words on a page and make, somebody 150 years later feel like they're literally living it you know so that's that's the gateway to the story is it just uh did, did you guys like it did it did you find Loved it, it. yes yes yeah. yeah yeah i am i was introduced to reading tolstoy by first reading um a novella of his that i guess was hidden in his chair and was supposed to be hmm. um published after his death called the devil i believe Oh, that's a wild one. Is that, that it has alternate endings? Is that the one? Yes, it does. I'm, I already just love short form Tolstoy. Um, and then I loved Anna Karenina. Um, and then this was, is my third incarnation of reading Tolstoy. And I just can't believe how it's just like, it's like what you were saying. It's, it kicks you 150 years later. Somehow it has this like depth of feeling and detail that isn't, uh, it doesn't put put you at a remove. It brings you in. Yeah. And yeah. and so yeah. like this one, it, it really had me. I was gonna say that the devil. I also teach that in in the in the actual course, and it's amazing because there's it has two endings, and then and neither one of them is completely satisfactory. And it's really wonderful uh, chance to talk about endings. How, how does an ending work? How does an ending uh, back and form the whole story before it. And we had some really lively discussions because it's a, it's again, it's a story that, you know, it's so vivid and the, uh, there are these sort of non-described sex scenes that are very sexy in a weird way. And it's, it's really a, <laughs> mm -hmm. a crazy, crazy story. I have to admit that Master and Man was my first Tolstoy. I have had Anna Kay on my to read list forever. Um, but I've always, I feel like it's not, it's not like the Beatles where like you kind of, you pick one a little bit and it's like, oh, I've always been a George guy or I've always been a Paul person. I've always been a Chekhov guy. I love, I love, love, love mm -hmm. Chekhov. And I think a lot of that is because um, my 
background is in theater. I came up as an actor and has worked as a producer and I've seen different translations of Chekhov on stage and the way that it comes alive. And in, in this book, the way that you talk about Tolstoy writing with facts felt at once so totally different from my experience of Chekhov, which has primarily been in his plays, but also his short stories, where, mm-hmm. like you were saying earlier, he sort of, he's able to present both sides of an argument and kind of leave you in that middle liminal state. Whereas Tolstoy is just like, here's what's going on. Here's how it is. And there's, it mm-hmm. feels frankly magical in the way that you have both said that like 150 years later, you're shivering as you're reading this story, no matter how warm mm-hmm. you might currently be. And it's, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody yeah. do anything quite like it. Yeah, I mean, he, it's really hard. And, you know, it, it was kind of a revelation to me. I was teaching this one year and I just started looking at it from like, how many uh, lofty philosophical statements are in the story? Zero, maybe one or two, you know, but it's all just a uh, really close observation of things. And he does it without any kind of linguistic showboating. The sentences are kind of made to get the maximum number of facts in there. Mm-hmm. So they're quite virtuosic, actually. You know, there's another little book that he wrote near the end of his life called Haji Mirad, uh, which is a, it's a, I think it's a novella. And people have said that it's, if you want to understand the structure of War and Peace or Anna Karenin, look at that book, because he took everything that he learned in the big books and did it in a compressed scale in that one. There's all these point of view changes. And um, I, I found uh, somebody sent me recently a YouTube video of his daughter. Uh, she looks to be about 70. And she's she settled in America and she was a chicken farmer, I guess. And so uh, I'll send you the link, but she's talking in perfect American English about her dad, her dad, Leo, mm. and uh, how one time he said very frankly and sadly to her that she was very homely, you know, and oh, it, it's really, it kind of makes you realize that he, it wasn't that, it was a hundred and something years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. You know, she was alive in the <laughs> 30s and 40s, I guess. <laughs> wow. But then the other thing about this story that I, that I think is amazing is, uh, and I don't want to, I don't know if you, if we want to give it away or, or, but, but there's a, um, as often happens in Tolstoy, there's a moment of incredible originality where he tells us something about the way that our minds work that you never noticed before. And then once he says it, you never can forget it. And in this story, it has something to do with the way that a, a shitty guy, well, the question, can a shitty guy get transformed or not? You know? Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, that's such, a, such an important question always and even now. And the way the method he proposes is, is really original and new. And to me, it's kind of reassuring in a way because the guy does change, uh, but not at all in the way that we're used to seeing people change in movies or, or most books. Right. I feel like in, in most books, the moment where he changes, it's more... <laughs> everything changes and it's not like he's not there's not this moment where he's celebrating himself where you're like oh, i am pretty great I'm, <laughs> I? like as he dies yeah, yeah i yeah. think it's just like right. it's so it's almost funny i'm like smiling about it it's not actually funny. Um, <laughs> no but no. It, it did make I, I me think no, of the, no. <laughs> it, it did make <laughs> me think of you you make this um parallel in the book and i was thinking about it while i was reading the story of just like the difference between you know um him and and scrooge is that like scrooge has this complete change that you just it's just mythical like you you want you wish that so many people would wake up christmas morning and (laughs) and have been visited by some ghosts um and change everything about them 
And, you know, Scrooge is essentially a different character the next morning completely. And this feels so much more possible and real as far as a change can can occur. Yeah. And, they, and, and on another axis, they kind of work similarly because Scrooge, you see that he used to be different. So when he when he wakes up Christmas morning, what's happened is the ghosts have restored all these memories to him of these valences that he used to have and lost over those hard years, you know, but in, in master and man, it's really something because it says basically that if you're going to, you know, if you Christopher are going to change in some fundamental way, it's not like you're going to get a DNA wipe, you know, and be a, and all your memories are going to go away and you're going to just, you know, you, you really would have to take all your natural energy and just slightly rechannel it. You know, um, that's pretty hopeful. You know, it, it means that you, and, and it means that whatever you're good at, you need to keep being good at that. Uh, and it's just a matter of which direction that energy gets, you know, but, but the thing about, about Tolstoy I love is that you end up talking about stuff like that, you know, yeah. um, you, you, the, the stories for, force you to go, okay, how do people change? Can they change? And, um, that, that I really love about these Russians, you know, they, they're not goofing around. They, they want you to ask the, whatever the big questions are, they want you to ask them. And in class, you know, it's amazing how quick, um, all these really smart, um, young writers get pushed up into the moral realm. You know, you can't read these stories and stick to only craft because craft is only there to service moral ethical questions. Um, and, and often the two things are almost the same. You know, there's a craft move that is cheap. Uh, okay, that lessens the intensity of the moral ethical question. Or like in this Tolstoy, story, the craft is so impeccable that it keeps forcing you up to higher ground. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the end, it not only says that he can change, it says exactly how, and you can pinpoint where, and then you can look at that and, and it opens up into a two hour discussion about, uh, what actually caused him to be better, you know? So that's pretty cool. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I, I would, I would love to be in class and debate whether he was, if he could have had any change that wasn't him near death. You know, that's a good question. That's right. a good question to have. Right. Would he have been able to change that's, without such dire circumstances? Right. It's like that Flannery O'Connor. He'd have been a good man if there was somebody to freeze him to death every day of his life. You know. <laughs> and, and also, I mean, but the other good, the other good question is just, you know, it has Tolstoy gotten it right about that? You know, do you know, do you know anybody who was really a stinker who actually did change? Did or come to think of it, did you ever really know anybody who was a stinker? You know. Who would you say was the most inconvertible stinker you ever knew? You know, th those questions, um, it, it makes a really nice space to do that kind of philosophizing, I guess, that maybe you don't get to do too much, you know, to really go back to first principles and say, like in this story in the book called The Darling, you know, it just basically says, what, what is love exactly? You know, it seems in, in her life, love was just glomming onto whoever was nearby and taking on all his characteristics. That doesn't seem like love. And then you go, well, on the other hand, that's kind of what we do. You know? <laughs> so anyways, it's, it's fun to have a, a you know, a, a literature class um, open up into something that's more than that even, you know. That, yeah. I saw some echoes of Master and Man in um, 10th of December, your short story. I feel like there, maybe sure. it's just the, the cold, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, deciding like I need to go into the cold to, to change myself. No, for sure. I, I think that that's the way it works. I mean, for me, you know, there's a handful of stories that I love so much. And you're basically, there's always a voice inside you say, saying, do something like that, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so, for example, there's another Tolstoy story called Death of Ivan Illich, which you, if you haven't read it, it's 
life changing. I mean, it's 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 every bit as powerful as master and man. And you'll never look at death the same way, you know, or a corpse the same way. Um, but but I had that in my head, like I want to do something like that, you know. Uh, now, what does that mean, something like that? But um, yeah, for sure, that tenth of December was definitely. And there was another story called uh, it was a David Quammen story called Walking Out that we read at Syracuse when I was there in the eighties, and that was a really beautiful. Um, wintertime rescue story that I had in mind. And then I, when I finished 10th of December, I was like, Oh my God, I better go read that to make sure I didn't spike it, you know? And then, and it's totally different. It's a totally different, but, but stories, they get in your head, you know, they make, they make a certain place of admiration and then you're always trying to somehow, you know, uh, do justice to them or pay homage to them in some way. What do you figure it is about, the Russians that have landed in, in that place for you. And I mean, that obviously it's a big statement of like the Russians, but it does, you know, they all kind of have a quality. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I always say it's a, they ask the big question. That's a little bit of a facile answer and I'm not sure. I mean, I think, I think that they, uh, okay. I was, you know, that same trip I was, I was there. Um, I met, there was a, a rally of some kind and, there was a barricade and you, uh, you weren't allowed to go into the parade. And this guy kind of looked at me, young guy, and he just lifted up the barricade and pushed me through. So I got into the May Day March or whatever it was. And then this guy followed me around and he invited me to dinner with him and his friends. So there's like 15 young Russians about my age, early 20s. Um, none of them were literary people as such. So the one guy was um, an engineer. And another guy was a venereologist. And he said, uh, I am a good doctor for bad people. No, no, I'm, I'm a good doctor for bad diseases. That's what they are. Um, but anyway, so we're sitting around drinking vodka, you know, and they had, uh, this was in the Soviet era. So they, they had, you know, pooled their money and bought some cold cuts, basically. I mean, it was, food was hard to come by and very generous thing. And we're having a little party, you know, and the, the party was uh, some Russian folk music playing and people reciting poetry. You know, there, this, this venereologist, um, stood up and recited George Bernard Shaw from memory, like pages of it, you know? So, and it was, you know, and this was the eighties and, you know, the parallel party in LA would not have been that, that's not what would have been happening. <laughs> happening. So there was something very earnest about it and something very kind of earnest and um, sincere and striving. Like here we are on this planet. Uh, you know, we have a foreigner among us. Let's talk about what life is, you know? And, and I, I found it very sweet and, and, you know, had a double awareness. Like it was very sweet and it was very naive, um, but it was right up my alley, you know? So I, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think if you believe in reincarnation, I feel like I might've been a, a Russian or maybe also I saw Dr. Zhivago when I was in high school and that's such a romantic, you know, uh, kind of movie. So I, I don't really know, but I, I can tell you, I've taught, um, another class in the American short story that never goes as well as the Russian one. Huh. I just don't have the, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I can do it. It's okay. But I don't have the, um, I, I don't know. My, maybe it's just my method of thinking about stories tracks really nicely onto the Russians. It doesn't tracks as easily onto say Cheever and Zora Neale Hurston and Updike and these really great stories that I love, but my teaching method somehow doesn't, doesn't land on them as as happily as it does on the Russians. Hmm. I don't I don't know why really. Drew and his wife used to run this um, artistic group called the Bellwether um, that was really cool, and they would ask they would ask artists to 
work in a discipline that they've never worked in before or something that they've always wanted to work in. And I'm curious, what, what would you like to work in that's not writing and still make art? Music, 100%. Cool. Yeah. I, 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 I was playing the guitar before I ever started writing and um, I love it and I'm halfway decent at it, but I'd, I'm not, I, um, at the critical moment, I could feel that I wasn't going to be, I didn't love it enough to, to try to pursue it, but I love it a lot. And I did, um, actually this last year, I did, um, Random House was nice enough to let me do the music for three of the audiobooks that I recorded. So they sent me in a studio in um, Santa Cruz uh, with this guy, Peter Coleman, and we did the these craziest kind of little three minute instrumentals, you know, and that was really, it was really fun. It was, it was That's so cool. very, uh, I had moments very much like writing where, yeah, it was, it was kind of great. Um, but it's, it's good. I mean, that's a great idea because beginner mind, you know, is so powerful, especially if you're a teacher to be reminded that it's not, you know, it doesn't come naturally for everybody. And, and, and sometimes to find a way that, uh, to do a, a art that feels natural is kind of a long sideways crawl, you know, like for music, I've been playing music for, since I was in high school and never did anything that I felt had any real touch of me in it before. It was always pretending to be somebody else, you know, trying to write like somebody else. And these little studio things that we did because they were so compressed and because I had a really good helper, uh, guide, actually this producer, um, there are moments in there that I'm really proud of. They're crazy as shit. They're, they're like my stories. They don't make any sense. They're kind of wild. <laughs> they're, um, uh, you, you, you kind of feel like, slow down, buddy. Uh, but I like them. They're, 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 uh, they're, not, they're not mundane, I guess. And yeah, so it would be music where, for sure. Where can people hear the music? Well, I think the only way that I know of is you can you can get the audiobook, but I can see if you guys I can see if I can get links and you could put them on the website if you want. They're 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 pretty they're crazy. They're kind of, you know, they're they're you'll know within the first 10 seconds if it's for you or not. <laughs> <laughs> Should we move to recommendations? Sure. Drew? Yeah? Is that the next thing we do? Let's do it. Do you want to start us off? I will. Um, I'm going to... I have a novel and a, a non-book thing. The novel is called Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melkor, uh, translated by Sophie Hughes. It came out last year. I kept seeing it's from New Directions, who always... They're always putting out interesting, cool, quirky, neat things. And... I read this at the very end of the year and it just blew me away. I had no expectations. I knew nothing about what the book was about. It is essentially seven chapters, each one from a different point of view. Um, it's set in a, a sort of small village in Mexico and uh, the witch, like the town witch has died been murdered they find like they find her face up in a river basically and it the story spins out and traces who she was how she got there how the townspeople have reacted it deals with like money and drug barons it deals with the violence that men perpetrate against women um, and against other men it deals with sexuality but it is 
literally torrential prose. The only breaks are for the chapter breaks and otherwise it is wall to wall text, mm. but in a way that I, wow. it was so compelling. <laughs> Usually mm. I, I look at that and I'm just like, oh God. And this, it just, it <laughs> grabbed me by something coming out of my chest and just yanked me forward. And I read it in maybe two or three sittings. I really, really loved it. I've never read anything like it. Um, mm. And then the wow. other, awesome. the other thing is a newsletter. It's called Letters from an American. Uh, and it's written by a professor from my alma mater, Boston College. Uh, I was not privileged enough to take a class with Professor Richardson, but this this professor, Heather Cox Richardson, she's a um, American history professor. It The newsletter comes out every day and it is her writing about the news, essentially, writing about what has happened that day and doing it in a way that contextualizes it in American history. Um, but also it's just, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to pull myself back from reading the news all the time and getting off of Twitter and just trying to calm down a little bit. And this is the most, uh, her, the newsletter that came out about yesterday that is talking about the absolute crazy shit that's happening in Congress right now. It's the first thing I've read about it that didn't raise my blood pressure. Mm. It's, it's mm. so wonderful to just see someone who is a terrific writer, who has the empathy of a teacher, who has the knowledge of American history and is, all, and is able to just present it in a way that feels like people can take the knowledge and do something with it instead of just kind of, you know? Uh, cool. And so yeah. there, it's a, there and is- that, And that's on Substack, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's Substack. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, I really love it. George, how about you? Well, I was going to stick with the Russian theme. There's a, there's a pair of memoirs uh, by Nadezhda Mandelstam. Uh, and what, the first one's called uh, Hope, Hope Against Hope. And the second one's called Hope Abandoned. And these were written uh, during the Stalinist era. And her husband was a great poet named Osip Mandelstam, who was uh, taken away and, and killed by the, by the Bolsheviks or by the Stalinists. And um, so it's, it's a really beautiful uh, book it's really a, a great love story about this couple who happens to be quirky and artistic and madly in love in the most cruel time you can imagine. Uh, and they're ripped apart and he's taken away. And the first book ends in um, one of the most beautiful love letters you, you'll ever read. I used to read it aloud in class, but everyone would start crying. So I, I quit, but it's, <laughs> uh, I thought that those memoirs are now to me very alive because of what we're going through now. And, you know, that sense um, that I think we can, we're, that I'm certainly getting that, oh yeah, things can really change. Things can change profoundly within one lifetime and never go back to the way they were. The, the, the universe doesn't really have your comfort in mind at all. It, it will go whither it goes. And, you know, those of us here on earth will, uh, suffer from it if you know as, as we do this is a kind of a beautiful story of, of a person who or two people who managed to have a great love affair in the midst of this you know big chomping jaw of, of uh, but but it's also very funny and it's and it shows I think the thing I love about it most is it's um, it shows real life you know the way that they would hustle to get some food and they would get some vodka and they would you know it's not um it's very uh, day to day. And I would bundle that with a, a book called I Will Bear Witness by a guy named Victor Klemperer, 
who was a Jewish guy in uh, Dresden, and uh, and he he just kept this incredibly uh, thick diary, you know, and um, as the, as Hitler came to power, and you know, he he writes about his his heart is bad, his health is no good, he's fighting with his wife, he's learning to drive a car, he just ran <laughs> over the fence. Oh, and Hitler made a speech, you know. So if so, that the idea of uh, somebody said it was the first uh, thing that made the Holocaust in color instead of black and white. So I think wow. in times like this, it's sometimes good to see one that it's been worse. It's been worse, but also the fact that these these sea changes really do happen, and in those moments, people still rise to the occasion. You know, uh, they still are virtuous people and loving people and heroic people, and that literature is often at the center of it. This guy would sit down every night and write beautifully. You know, in this diary, and he at one point when it was getting really bad, he said, "I'm just." Uh, the only thing I, I'm here for is to record this. There's, you know, I can't remember how he said it, but there's power in recording this. Um, so I, I'm kind of revisit those, I think, just to, you know, kind of get ready for whatever is coming in the next couple of years. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Christopher, what do you got? Um, I'm going to recommend just a novel, um, Via Negativa by Daniel Hornsby. It's about a, um, it's about a, a priest who has retired and now he has made his car his sort of monk's cell and in the he's driving to go visit some friends he's estranged from and the very early on in the book he hits a coyote with his car and decides to care for it and and fix its leg and so in the back seat of his car the whole time there's a live coyote that he's trying to keep tranquilized with antihistamines and <laughs> other things <laughs> and um it is a it's a funny book. It's also really um, asks a lot of questions about religion and belief um, in a way that you know I I didn't grow up with religion um, very much, so it's it's really intriguing to read it in a novel and, and the way that it was presented for this the whole time. You're waiting for him to tell the story of why he turned to the priesthood. And it's something that he holds off until the very end of the book, but it's it's so powerful when you finally get the why he got the call. Um, and I just never expected to love it so much. That's cool. You know, I was thinking there's one, I, I was going to recommend a piece of music too that I thought of. There's um, a wonderful composer named Carolyn Shaw, and she has a piece of music called uh, Partita for Eight Voices that was done by a group called Roomful of Teeth. It's an acapella group. And we heard it live just, you know, not too long before the pandemic. And it is amazing. It's just, I, and, you know, it kind of reminds you that um, those of us who love books, you know, you can always reduce a book to a meaning, you know, uh, if it, mm -hmm. if a book is so beautiful, it freaks you out. You can always talk about the theme and, and, but this music, I don't know what it means, except I, every time I listen to it, I just feel like 60% more alive and uh it, it's it's really it's all all the human voices eight voices and making all kinds of noises you didn't know it could make and it's really riveting george saunders thank you so much for joining us this has been amazing. so many damn books a swim in a pond in the rain is available now uh and as well as your all of your other books which we didn't even mention so, so many of the things of, that you've written that i personally just love to bits and um thank you so much for coming on it was such a pleasure thank you. what a great great way to spend an evening thank you uh people at home uh if you are feeling uh 
reviewy. You could go review our podcast on iTunes. You can also give us money on patreon.com slash SMDB if you feel the need. Um, and also just uh, go out and read things and keep the world fresh. Keep the world fresh. A swim in the pond in the rain will do it too. It will keep your mind fresh. We're going to get some blue baseball caps made. Keep them, make the world fresh again. I love it.